Yeah, I was thinking this week, I'm wondering what your thought is. Um, do you think that proclaiming the gospel has that big of an impact? I mean, why do we do Reach Month? Do you really think that if every Christian just shared their faith, that that would make a difference? I think by practice, we would say no. Our theology tells us that we should say yes, right? Our Christian guilt tells us that we should say yes, but our lives tell us we should say no. If you really want to impact culture, I think as Christians in our area, we tend to believe who you vote for matters more. Where you live matters more. Here's my question. Do you really think if every Christian proclaimed the gospel and modeled it in their community, would it make a difference? I think it would. I think it would because I think that's what the Bible tells us. That's the examples we see throughout all of Scripture and Paul and Barnabas and their first missionary journey is a great example of that. Last week, if you're with us, we're in the middle of our study of Acts. Acts chapter 13, the church of Antioch sends Paul and Barnabas out on the first ever mission trip to the Gentiles. And Paul and Barnabas went to the island of Cyprus to proclaim the gospel and confront deception. And the results were miraculous. We have our missionary trip map on here. See, Paul and uh, Barnabas, they're not done with Cyprus. We're going to continue through this map of the missionary journey. We're not going to make it all the way through. Those of you who were here eight hours yesterday, don't worry. We're not going to be here eight hours again today. But I do want to share a little bit more. If you have your Bibles with you, Acts chapter 13 We'll be starting in verse 13. Acts chapter 13. We'll be continuing our study beginning in verse 13. Here's what happened. After all that miraculous stuff happened in the island of Cyprus, verse 13 of Acts chapter 13. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, but John left them and return to Jerusalem. Now, we're going to hit pause there because we're going to get into it a few chapters later because that move right there, John going home, Barnabas's cousin, caused a huge brouhaha between Paul and Barnabas. All right, so hit pause on that verse and just know we're going to address it in a couple weeks. Keep going. Verse 14, but... That didn't stop Paul and Barnabas. John went home. Mark went home, right? John Mark went home, verse 14. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading the law of the prophets, the synagogue officials said to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So here's what happens. After Cyprus, after John Mark leaves, Paul and Barnabas end up going to the city of Pisidian Antioch, not to be confused at the Antioch church that they were 
sent from. It's a different Antioch. Antioch of Pisidia, it's about 100 miles north of the city of Perga, 3,600 feet up. No cars, there's just one dirt road going up 3,600 feet. I mean, Paul and Barnabas really wanted to go to this city. 100 miles by foot, just short of 4,000 feet up in elevation. When they get there, they do what's customary, they go to the synagogue. That's where the people of God, that's where the Jews and the Gentiles who believed in the God of the Bible, where they went. So Paul and Barnabas decided they'd start right there in the synagogue. In the, the typical synagogue service, it would begin with a time of prayer and blessing by the leader of the synagogue. There'd be a reader, a, a reading from one of the Old Testament books of law. And then there'd be a reading, another reading from the Old Testament prophet. And then typically in the synagogue, the leader of the synagogue would open it up for a, a Jew of note, for a Jewish leader if they wanted to come in and address the congregation. And evidently this guy knew of Paul and Barnabas. I don't know how we knew. There's lots of different opinions. Maybe Paul went in with his Pharisee name tag and that gave him credibility. Maybe he went with the school of Gamaliel sweatshirt on. Maybe that did it. Many think that the proconsul that they led to the Lord in Cyprus told him to go to the city of Pisidian Antioch because it was a, a key Roman city for government and military. We don't know. But Paul and Barnabas go into the synagogue. They're sitting down. They go through the majority of the service. And then the guy, basically, the leader of the synagogue, looks at Paul and says, hey, Paul, do you have anything you want to say about God to the group? Yeah, that's a softball pitch to, to Paul, right? But I was thinking, what would you say? Has that ever happened to you? Someone comes up and says, hey, do you have anything about God you want to say to me? I mean, what would you say to that? I think the typical Christian would be worried. Well, I don't want to say something that's too judgy. I don't want to say something that would, that would maybe make them feel like I'm attacking them, but I also want to give them the true power of the gospel. And so we struggle trying to know what do we say? How do we say it? If that's you. I'd love to share with you a sermon from Paul. Paul knew exactly what to say. He didn't focus on the brokenness of their culture. He didn't focus on the individual sins of people. He focused on the activity of God. Right there in the synagogue, leader of the synagogue says, Paul, you have anything you want to tell us about God? God says, or Paul says, you bet I do. Let me share a sermon. Verse 16, Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, and he said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, or the God, the, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led 
them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which he took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel and the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart and will do all of my will. First thing Paul does, he say, hey, Paul, you want to tell something about God? God says, yes, I want to tell you something about God and I want to focus on his activity throughout history. First thing Paul says, I want you to see is God's preparation Man, God has been hard at work. God chose Abraham, and then when there was a time of famine, God placed them in Egypt where Israel thrived. God did that. And then when they were enslaved, God rescued them out of slavery. God did that. When they were wandering through the desert for 40 years because of their lack of faith, God guided them. God did that. When they went to the promised land and saw all these nations that they had no chance of defeating, God drove those nations out. God did that. God provided judges to lead them and guide them, protect them from their own stupidity. When they asked for a king, which wasn't very fair, God gave them a king. And when that king didn't work out, God gave him another king. The greatest king of Israel, King David. God did that. In fact, in this one section, Luke makes sure to mention God 12 plus times. In Paul's sermon, he wants to make sure everyone understands, look, when you look past history, it's not our good looks that got us here. It's not our greatness that got us here. God led us out of Egypt. God led us through the, is, through the desert. God destroyed the nations of Canaan. God gave us the promised land. God gave us judges. God gave us kings. This is God's plan. God has been hard at work. For what? This isn't new to all these people, and they know this. You might think, man, this is a great strategy of Paul. I want you to go back and look at the activity of God that all of this has been focused for a reason. It's preparing for something. But I want you to know, this isn't Paul's idea. Jesus used a strategy first. Do you remember that? There was a time after his, after his death, some of his disciples, thinking that the kingdom of God was done, they quit. They decided to go home. They're on this road called Emmaus. And as they were walking down this road, 
disenfranchised with how things happened, probably a little upset at God, a little upset at Jesus. I mean, they left everything for him. The text tells us that Jesus just appeared in their midst, but he blocked their eyes from being able to recognize him. Remember this story? So Jesus is able to come up and say, hey guys, what's going on? And these guys were vulnerable to Jesus in ways that they wouldn't have been had they recognized him. They started saying, oh, we thought Jesus was the answer. He wasn't. He's dead. The world's all gone crazy. We're going home. We don't know what we're going to do. And that's when Jesus spoke these words. Jesus looked at me and said, Oh, foolish man, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, look at this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all of scriptures. And Jesus went through and made sure they understood. God's been preparing this from the very start. Paul has this opportunity to speak. First thing he says, I want you to focus on the activity of God. Number one is preparation. His preparation for what? That leads us to the second part, God's promise. After he focuses on all this preparation, look at verse 23. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. Paul says, after all of this work, after all this activity, God has finally given his promise. A term promise used to define an agreement, a public declaration that you can be assured will happen. All of this activity was for a reason. God made a promise, remember? Let's go on. Verse 23, from the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. Verse 24, after John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not him, I'm not the savior. But behold, surprise, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Verse 26, brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God. Paul's talking to Jews and Gentiles. To us, the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. Man, we just talked about it. That's what Paul's like. We were just talking about the prophecies of God. Verse 28, though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. Verse 33, big biblical but right there. But God raised him from the dead. Again, here's God's activity. Man, God has been intricately involved in this. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now as witnesses to the people. Paul continues, verse 32. Well, Paul says this, and we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus, as is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
Paul says, all this work of God was because of this promise of a savior. Paul says, it's been fulfilled, means to bring to completion, to make happen, to make good on his promise by what he did in Jesus. God did it. There's Paul and Barnabas at the synagogue. Hey, Paul, you have anything important to say? Yeah. God's been working for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, actively preparing to fulfill this promise that we've been praying about every Saturday. We've been reading about every Saturday. Paul says, you want to know? What I have to share about God, here it is. God fulfilled his promise in Jesus. And I love how Paul continues. Look at verse 34. He says, as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. But David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was dead among his fathers and underwent decay. Hey, you think King David's so great? He's still in the ground. Hey, you want to celebrate King David? You think King David's amazing? He finished God's purpose for him and God left him in the ground. But, big biblical but right there, verse 37, but he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Man, Jesus is so much more higher, so much elevated beyond King David. Paul's going to this church, Israelites, people who believe in God, who are Gentiles. Paul, you have something to say? Yeah, I have something to say. Stop worrying about culture. Stop worrying about the brokenness of everyone else. Let's look at what God's been up to. God has been intricately involved in all of this for centuries, leading up to this promise that's been fulfilled in Jesus. Verse 38, therefore, you remember, Grandpa always said, therefore, when you see it, look in front of it to make sure you know what it's there for. He's not the only one who said that, but he's the one I give credit to. Therefore, because of God's activity, because of his preparation, because of his fulfilling the promise, look at what God's provided. Look at God's provision. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you cannot be free through the law of Moses. Man, all your rituals, all your sacrifices, all that guilt, all that shame, all that fear of judgment. Man, through Jesus, you get forgiveness. Forgiveness, that term means that God has brought you deliverance from your sins. He's provided a pardon for your trespasses. He has dismissed the case of judgment against you. And then Paul finishes with a warning, verse 40. Therefore, take heed. Man, God has been busy. Focus on the activity of God, his preparation, his promise, and what it provides for you. He says, therefore, take heed, pay attention, 
so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days which will you will, that you will never believe, even though someone should describe it to you. Paul says, I want you to hit pause and try to see what I'm telling you. Because a lot of people are going to miss it. Even when someone describes it to you and proclaims it to you, it's so amazing. You're not even going to believe it. I was thinking about this sermon from Paul. Let me do two questions. Number one, you know, do you know that God has been actively preparing something for you? I mean, God has been working through time, preparing something for you. The Bible says God isn't slow in returning, He is patient. Man, God is still active. And it's not just for these people in the book of Acts, it's for you. Paul wrote this to the church of the Rome in Rome, Romans 5, 8, and 9. Look what he says, but God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And at your worst, Christ died for you. For those of you who are here, wondering if maybe God's forgotten you, abandoned you, left you, focus on the activity of God throughout time and recognize God has not abandoned you. He has been actively involved in preparing this for you. If you're here saying, Brian, I, I want that. I need forgiveness. At the end of the service, we'd certainly love to talk to you, share this with you, make sure that you can understand what Paul's describing. But my, I know many of you, many of you are like, hey, Brian, I already have that. I know that. Then my question again goes back to who in your life needs to hear this message? Who in your life needs to hear this? I really want you to prayerfully consider one person. One person who doesn't know that God's been working throughout time for them. One person who wonders if God has abandoned them left them, tries to stay away from them because they're so horrible. One person who's still buried in their guilt and their shame, fear of judgment, worried about Christ's return, discouraged about the future, thinking this is the best they'll ever have. One person God's put in your life don't focus on the brokenness of culture. And don't focus on the areas of their life that aren't right before God. Perhaps we need to start by focusing on God's activity for them. If 
For God so loved the world, he gave his only son for them. Focus on the activity of God, his preparation, his promise, and his provision of forgiveness. But I'd be remiss if I stopped there after Paul's sermon. I want you to see the results. First thing Paul did was he gave this great sermon on the focus of the authority of God. And I want you to know that when you share the gospel with people, this one person, you need to expect different responses from people. You need to be prepared for that. Some people will accept it. Some people will reject it. Look what happened to Paul. Verse 42, look at this. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Begging, they were pleading. Paul, please come back. You're blowing our minds. I mean, is that just, I mean, what have they been doing every Saturday? Singing songs, reading prophets, reading the law? I mean, and this is blowing their mind that God has been active throughout time in bringing the promise of salvation? Verse 43, now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas who speaking to them were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Keep going. This is awesome. This is amazing. This is incredible. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, the very next week, nearly the entire city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. One week. Paul gave one sermon focusing on the activity of God and it blew people's minds. Nearly the entire city came out. And you might be saying, okay, well, Brian, that's, that's that city. What about ours? That's not going to work here. Really? Let me share some demographics with you. 47% of our 10-mile radius, people on our 10-mile radius, have no faith involvement at all. They're not Christian. They're not Buddhist. They're nothing. You add into those who have been deceived and following some false religion. We're looking at roughly 60% of our population in conservative Chino Valley have yet to see Jesus as you do. We also know that of that 60%, 86% of them believe that God is real. And over 70 of them believe that God is actively involved in their day-to-day -day life. So majority of the people in our community believe in God that he is actively involved in their lives, but they don't know how to get to him. They've yet to see him how you do. And do I think that people would respond if Christians in the Chino Valley just proclaim the glory of God, not focusing on dethroning people in government, not focusing on the wackiness of culture. Let's just focus on God. Man, God has been hard at work. 
reaching to save lost people. And do I think people will respond to that? Heck yeah. I guess part of me is like, prove me wrong. Some will receive it. When you proclaim the glory of God and you focus on the activity of God, some will receive it. But some will reject it. So we see a big biblical but right there in verse 45. Just when you think, man, the whole city is out there. Everyone's got to be recognizing this. Everyone's got to be loving this, right? This is fantastic. Everyone is finally seeing who God is. Look at verse 45. But just when you think everything's going great. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. It makes you wonder, what were they they disagreeing about? Paul was quoting scripture in his entire sermon. It says, out of jealousy. The term jealous means to envy, to be filled with resentment, built out of dissatisfaction. These Jewish leaders, when they saw the, the way the power of God is at work in culture, they grew jealous. It's not the first time. Let's put our thumbs in Acts chapter 14. Let's flip to the left, Acts chapter 5. That same word is used to describe the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. This is at the peak of the church at work in Jerusalem. Verse 12. Acts chapter 5, verse 12, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out to the streets, laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits. They're all being healed. This ministry was transforming the entire region. Verse 17, look at this. But the high priest rose up along with his associates, that is a sect of Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. And we wanted God to do that stuff through us. They're filled with jealousy, envy, resentment, built out of dissatisfaction. It led them to persecute the church back then, and it leads them to persecute the church even today. I want to tell you something that James said. James, the brother of Jesus, James 3.16. I think this ought to be as famous as John 3.16, to be honest. Look at what James said about jealousy. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. Man, the church, we love, to, we love to just focus on lust, greed. Hey, I ask you, you have a problem with jealousy? J- 
James warns the church where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Are you aware of the dangers of jealousy? Is it possible that we as Christians need to be less focused on the sins that non-believers have in their lives Oh, the power of God to deal with the sin that continues to erode our own. Let's get back to the text, Acts chapter 13, the end. These leaders were speaking against Paul and Barnabas, verse 46. Look at Paul's response. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it's necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, surprise, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Look, God wanted to use Israel to tell the Gentiles about the gospel of salvation. But since you guys are fighting against it, Paul and Barnabas said, fine, we'll do it. And then we have a time again of people receiving it, rejoicing. Verse 48, look at the result. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, glorifying God and the word of the Lord. And as many as been appointed to eternal life believed, and all the Christians closed their Bibles, and oh, there it is. That's when the fights start, right? As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And Christians close their Bibles and they stop reading. And we start fighting over that word appointed. The term appointed, it means to be enrolled, arranged, or determined. In essence, Luke says that God saved everyone he planned to save at that time. Listen, it's a clear biblical fact that God chooses. You can't get around it. God chooses. God chose Abraham. He chose Abraham. God chose him. Abraham didn't apply. God picked him. God picked Israel the nation of Israel, God picked them to be his holy nation, not because they were better than everybody, I want you to know. Look at what God said in Deuteronomy 7. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the people, for you were the fewest of all. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. He can't get away. God chose this is a biblical truth throughout Scripture. God chooses. But then we freak out. There are some people who say, well, there are some who believe that God chose to save an unknown, an unknown number of specific people for salvation based on his mercy. Some people say God picked a select group of people. Other people they say that God elects everyone and gives them the choice of accepting salvation. And that battle has been raging for centuries. Still rages today. Did you know that? Churches are divided over how God chooses. But 
But in the midst of this battle over understanding how God does his part, millions of Christians forget about what it says about us doing our part. I want you to recognize that. Like after all these people are fighting for centuries over trying to understand how God does his part, we lose focus on what God appointed us for. Let me show you some verses. Ephesians 1.4. Look at this. Just as he chose us, there's that dreaded word, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. The verse doesn't stop just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Boom, done. Oh, he chose us for a reason. To be holy and blameless. Let's not get so hung up on how God chose that we forget what he chose us for. A chapter later, Ephesians 2. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Man, God is choosing throughout stuff. You can't get around that. But instead of arguing over how God did it, what have we focused on what God did it for? For us to be a reflection of his glory. Look what Paul said to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, gave us the ministry of reconciliation, Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Man, what's God about? Why is he doing all this? What has he chosen us for? Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. Paul says, we beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Wherever you land on the understanding of how God does his part of choosing, the truth of God appointing us should not only bring us to celebrate the grace of God together, but motivate us to walk together in unity as ambassadors of Christ. Let's not get so hung up on arguing over how God does his part, that we allow it to, dis, to disunify us and confuse us on how we're to do our part. The act of God choosing should have an impact. Look at verse 49. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. In the midst of this cycle, Paul gave his sermon, some believed, some rejected. More believed, more rejected. And there's a cycle in the ministry of Paul that at the same time of this tremendous ministry impact, there's rejection. And my question is, do you think the same can be true today? At the same time as people turn from God, there's other people turning to him. At the same time that people are rejecting the truths of God, do you think it's possible that people are ready to accept it? How do we move forward? How do we do it 
here. Two final truths for you. Verse 51. They shook the dust off their feet and protested against them and went to Iconium. How do you proceed when people reject the gospel? What do you do? Shake it off. Shake it off. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Christ. If you proclaim the gospel and people oppose it, reject it, shake it off. But there's also something else. Look at the result, verse 52. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. In the midst of this cycle of acceptance, rejection, acceptance, rejection, the disciples, the people who are seeing it, were being filled, continually filled with joy. That's in the passive third person, meaning that God is doing it. So how do we move forward? When someone rejects your message of the gospel, shake it off. And then be joyful. Remembering God's work in your life and through it. I want to know how I think we transform culture. How we see God do a movement in the Chino Valley. I think we will proclaim the activities of God. And then we just go forward expecting. Some will receive it. And some will reject it. But we need to be faithful to do our part. Let's pray. God, we're here this morning. God, many of us, because we believe in your activity, God, we know that you have been actively working to minister in our midst and through our life. So God, I ask that you give us the boldness to proclaim your glory, to be what you chose us to be. God, may you equip us and prepare us. God, give us confidence as we share your truth, your activity, your promise, your provision. God, as we share it with one person, God, give us a name, one name. Do you have place in our life for your glory? God, I pray if there's people here who still feel distant from you, who still feel cut off from you, people here who have yet to receive a fresh start with you. God, I pray you open their eyes and allow them to see you as I do. God, I pray that you would allow them the humility to open their heart before you, confess their failures and their brokenness, to receive your forgiveness and your promise of salvation. God, I pray you give them just what you've promised, that you'd fill them with your spirit. You give them a peace that's beyond human comprehension. God, I pray you give us joy. Fill us with joy as we move forward and confidence of the work that you're still committed to doing in our lives and through our ministry together. I pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen.